Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. Actually, I believe I'll start reading in verse 39, just because it's pertinent as well. So Luke 2, 39 to 52. And then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 26. So Luke 2, 39 to 52. So our scripture reading and our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 to 26. Brothers and sisters, as the word of God is about to be read to you, I enjoin you, I entreat you to give your full attention to it, for it is the Lord speaking to you. Luke 2, 39-52, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 and reading through verse 26. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man ordered, offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. 
Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who could intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we have heard your word read and we pray that by your spirit you would bless it unto us. We pray that your spirit would cause us to have understanding. We pray that your spirit would convict us of any sin that we possess, that we commit, that we carry out, that we are devising in our minds. We pray that your spirit would prevent us by having heard your word read and now having heard your word preached, that he would prevent us from entering into sin. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding, wisdom, knowledge. That he would give us humility. We pray that you would bless the one who preaches your word and that you would bless those who hear your word preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel. Just sort of as an overview, just to give you a sort of a, a, a big picture, a, a bird's eye view of what's going on, we look at this passage and we see that there are a number of things going on in it. And the events that are described in the verses that we read from verse 12 to verse 26 of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, these span probably a number of years. There is the description of the corrupt behavior of the high priest's sons. There's the description of the yearly procession of Hannah and Elkanah to Shiloh. And Hannah's making this little robe for her son Samuel to wear in the sanctuary. But stepping back just a little bit, we also see here the prep work that God is doing in anticipation of providing Israel a king. Now, as you know, projects always require prep work. And God's project in 1 Samuel, especially these uh, first few chapters of 1 Samuel, is to establish a monarchy in Israel. This was a promise that he made going all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. That he would give to Israel, to, to Abraham's people, a king. Now, after we bought this building in 2013, those of you who were here for that, you helped to participate in it, you can remember that not all of the wall colors in this building are are, are now what they were then. And some of you may remember that there in this room, there was an attempt at, at what we on the session like to call an attempt at a Shekinah glory cloud uh, on, the, on, the, on the brown parts of the wall. There was sort of a blue background with a, sort of a, a fuzzy white uh, painting. And, and, and it, was a, it was a different type of church that was here before we were here. And we like our, our staid uh, sort of light brown colors and everything in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in good order. 
And so he subdued uh, the colorings of the church. But, but prior to that, in various places, many of the rooms were painted. We had to do a lot of prep work. And if you're like me, I don't, I don't personally like the prep work for painting. I don't mind the rolling on of the paint, the brushing on of the paint, but the taping and the sanding and the putting out of drop cloths and the being careful uh, along the edges, all of those things. Give me a wide open surface and I will paint all day. But the prep work is difficult. It's, it's painstaking. It's demanding in its miniality, if that is a correct word. The Lord does not shy away from the prep work. And that's exactly what he is doing here. He's engaged in prep work in our passage this morning. He's not disinclined uh, from or afraid to do the grunt work that necessarily precedes his more visible and notable and glorious work. And so for years prior, really going all the way back to Abraham, but in this day and age, he's getting very close now with Samuel, the advent of of Samuel, he's getting very close to the institution of the monarchy. And so some of the final prep work is underway. God always does this. For example, prior to the birth of the Messiah, what did God do? He sent his angels as messengers to announce the coming of Christ. And then after Jesus was born, he sent further messengers to to proclaim that he had been born. Prior to the Messiah, Jesus beginning his earthly ministry, God sent John the Baptist to prepare a way to make straight the paths, to serve as a forerunner to Christ, proclaiming his inauguration of his kingdom. And so in our passage this morning in 1 Samuel, we see that this is exactly what God is doing. He's doing the prep work. He's, he's laying the foundation, the roadbed. And then he's later on in the book of 1 Samuel going to use Samuel to, to make even straighter the path for the coming of the king. As one author put it, the situation among the people of Israel had been degenerating for years. And the worst of it was that the corruption originated at the sanctuary. Eli's own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, profaned the holy services and stole from the Lord. God is setting the stage. He's doing the cleanup work that is necessary for the people of Israel to be ready to receive the king that God would soon give to them. God is going to sweep away the people who were the source of the corruption and grow up new leaders in their place. As we work our way through the passage this morning, I would ask you to consider this. By His grace, the Father will cause His children to grow in stature and favor with Him for His glory and His people's good. By His grace, the Father will cause His children to grow in stature and favor with Him for His glory and His people's good. The sermon this morning, unlike what was mentioned at the conference for Puritans that might have a 17-point sermon, this one is very basic. Two points today. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any shorter than usual, but there are only two points uh, of the sermon. The first point is, like father, like sons. The second point is growth in grace. Again, like father, like sons, and growth in grace. So let's look at the first point now, like father, like sons. The opening sentence of our passage is notable for its bluntness. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. The second sentence is no less harsh in verse 12. They did not know the Lord. 
Now this, as you probably can see, looking at the previous passage, even the preceding verse in chapter 2, verse 2 shows us a very different thing that's going on. Verse 11 tells us that after Hannah had dropped Samuel off at the tabernacle in Shiloh, Elkanah and the family went home to Ramah, and Samuel ministered to the Lord there at the tabernacle. This little boy, Samuel, is ministering to Yahweh, but the two sons of Eli, the high priest, don't even know the Lord. And these men are worthless, according to Scripture. Now, a literal translation of the first sentence in verse 12 is, and the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. And some commentators have suggested that this is the name of a pagan god, a Canaanite god of the underworld. But most likely by the time that 1 Samuel was written, it is an expression meaning utter destruction. It could have had associations with Satan, but that's not a direct association. This might have been at some point understood to be, Baal might have been understood to be the, the god of the underworld, the god of the dead. And so Hophni and Phinehas could accurately be described then as sons of destruction. But this is actually the second time that the word Belial has been used in 1 Samuel. And it will be used again seven other times in the two books of Samuel. The first time that it was used was back in chapter 1, verse 16. Where Hannah, in reaction to Eli, assuming that she was drunk when she was in the sanctuary praying, said to him, Your servant, don't regard, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Or it could be translated as a, as a daughter of Belial. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Eli is assuming here that Hannah is a daughter of destruction, that she's a daughter of Belial. But God's word says, ironically, that it's not Hannah who is, but his two sons who are, in fact, children, sons of Belial. And it's in that same passage in chapter 1 where Eli assumes the worst about Hannah that we have a foreshadowing of what is to come for Eli and for his household. We notice that when we were in that passage several weeks ago that, that Eli exhibited a lack of spiritual sight. He couldn't see the spiritual activity uh, in which Hannah was engaged. And that, will, uh, that foreshadows a, a coming lack of, of physical sight, a loss of physical sight that takes place as described in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. He mistakes the fervent prayers of this godly woman for the mutterings of a woman in drunken stupor. Also, with regard to our passage, notice that the, the names of the sons of Eli aren't even used here. They were introduced by name back in chapter 1, verse 3. They were described there as priests of the Lord. But by this time, their names have been, in a sense, blotted out. And they are described as worthless men who do, do not even know the Lord whom they purport to serve. But the author of the book isn't satisfied simply to describe the sons of Eli in this manner. He also gives examples of their worthlessness and their destructiveness. Beginning in verse 13 and going to verse 17, we have a description of their corrupt practices in the sanctuary of the Lord. God's law provides for the priests of the tabernacle and later the priests of the temple to be fed from the sacrifices of the people to the Lord. That's a part of the provision. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 28 to 36 contains instructions for how the sacrifices are to be used. The fat of the sacrifice is to go to Yahweh. 
And verses 31 and 32 of Leviticus 7 says that the breast would go to Aaron and his sons and the right thigh to the priest. So there's provision that is made for the priests of the tabernacle, the priests of the temple, that they would be fed off of the sacrifices uh, that the people brought to the Lord. But this is not what Eli's sons were limiting themselves to. They didn't limit themselves to what was apportioned to go to the priest. The priest at Shiloh, Eli's sons, would, they would have their servant thrust a three-pronged fork into whatever vessel the meat was being carried in, and whatever came out on that three-pronged fork, that belonged to them. And even worse, they would take the fat, the fat which was, according to Leviticus 7, to be sacrificed to, to Yahweh. They would take it for themselves. They would demand that the people who were bringing the sacrifice, that they bring it to them raw so that they could, they could find the choicest portions of the sacrifice and roast it for themselves. And if the worshiper refused, the servant was instructed to take it from them by force. Jesus' words in John chapter 8 to some of the Jews who followed him when he told them that their father was the devil would have been appropriate to these two, these sons of Belial. Now, Eli, as we will see later on, he was corrupt. But his sons took it to next level corruptness. Verse 17 says that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, which was a terrible sin in the sight of God. Verse 22 says that they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Women who had served at the, women had served at the entrance to the tent of meeting since the time of, exit, of the exodus from Egypt. Some of these same women would have been the women who took care of Samuel when he was dropped off as a young boy, a young toddler at the age of three or so. But now these priests, sons of the high priest, were taking advantage of some of these women. How could these women say no to their bosses and still keep their jobs? So just as Eli's sons took from the people and from God when they stole from the sacrifices, so they took from these women. And it was for all of these reasons and more that we read this harsh statement at the end of verse 25. Harsh but necessary statement, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The sons of Eli in this passage are contrasted with Samuel. He who God causes to grow in grace, and that leads us to the second and the final point of the sermon this morning, growth in grace. You have the sons of Eli, and they're set next to, they're juxtaposed with the son of Elkanah. Verse 18 begins a short section that stands in stark contrast with the preceding six verses. We read there, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Verse 19 indicates that it had been the custom of Hannah to bring a new robe each year when she and the family came to Shiloh. And so it's possible that by the the time of the events in this passage, Samuel Samuel has been there for a few years. And then by the time we get uh, to verse 22, it seems like even more time has passed. More years have elapsed. The impression is that that as the sons of Eli descended into degeneracy, degeneracy, Uh, Further and further, Samuel did just the opposite, growing in grace. And Hannah, whose name means grace, did as well. She and Elkanah 
continued to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. She and Elkanah would go up to Shiloh each year and offer their sacrifice to the Lord. And Eli would, would bless them as he does in our passage. May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. We noted several weeks ago that Hannah, she is given this son, Samuel, her firstborn. We might even say her, her only son at this point. As far as she knows, she may receive no other children. You can remember the, the anguish that she felt at the hands, at the, at the torments of her sister wife, uh, Penina, who gloated over her, who pointed to uh, the, the multitude, apparently, of children that she was able to bear to Elkanah. Remember that despite all of that, uh, Hannah was, was Elkanah's favorite wife. He, he loved her more than, than Peninnah. It's probably part of the, the source of her antagonism for Hannah. And even so, this child whom Hannah had longed for, and she's finally given this son. She makes the promise to the Lord before he, he grants her the conception of Samuel. She promises she'll give him to the temple to the tabernacle, rather, to serve before the Lord. And she does so, not knowing whether or, or not she'll be able to have any more children. Here, she's given more, we read. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And so despite the corruption, despite the graft, despite the theft, despite the greediness of Eli's sons, Elkanah, Hannah, and the family, they went up each year to worship the Lord and offer sacrifices to him. And God grew them in their devotion to him. And then we read this phrase at the end of verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of verse 26, there's a more elaborate uh, statement, somewhat similar but more elaborate in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We saw a couple of weeks ago that Hannah's hymn and Mary's Magnificat had a similar structure and similar themes. And it seems that, that Mary likely had Hannah's hymn in her mind when she burst forth into song in Luke chapter 1. Their situations were somewhat similar and Mary would have known her Bible well. In Luke chapter 2, we find similar phrases about Jesus. In verse 40, Luke writes, And the child grew up, that is, Jesus grew and became strong, and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then we read in chapter 2, verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And you see the similarities between what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. Now we have to be very careful here. Jesus and Samuel are not identical. We're not setting up a, an exact parallel between these two men. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God who became man by being born of the Virgin Mary by the power of God the Spirit. Jesus lived his entire life on earth without committing a single sin. Samuel, on the other hand, was a typical human being in many ways. He was certainly special. He was ordained by God from the moment of conception, even prior to that, to be a prophet, the prophet, who's going to anoint the first kings of Israel. But Samuel was conceived into an estate of sinfulness. Samuel committed actual sins, just like the rest of us. Samuel was being raised up by God to be a prophet, but Jesus came to be our prophet, priest, and king. But 
for both Samuel and Jesus, God played a role in their being born. In Samuel's case, God blessed his parents' marital relations and Hannah conceived. In Jesus' case, the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived. And both Samuel and Jesus, when they were boys, we read descriptions that are so strikingly similar. They were boys and they grew in stature and in favor with God as well as with man. And so we can say a couple of definitive things here. God the Father is Jesus Christ's Father from all eternity. Christ is the eternally begotten Son of God. We can also safely say that though Elkanah was Samuel's father, he had God as his father as well. Now, if Hophni and Phinehas were sons of Belial, sons of destruction, because they did not know the Lord, then we can safely say that Samuel was a son of God, not the son of God, a son of God, because he knew the Lord and he trusted in him. More than being the son of Elkanah, Samuel was a son of God. Now we need to note, we need to, to point out that, that Eli tried in a very weak way to correct his sons. In verses 23 to 25, he rebukes them for their behavior. But by that time, it was too little too late. Verse 25 does contain a fairly stern war warning, though. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? Ironically, and Eli ought to have known this, it was the high priest who was supposed to intercede for people who had sinned against the Lord. Eli. Eli was unable to see his own culpability with regard to his son's heinous behavior, but he also could not understand his own responsibility to make intercession on their behalf. Eli had permitted his son's corruption to grow over the years. He had turned a blind eye to their theft from God's people. And so he had become spiritually blind. He couldn't even see the way that his sons were stealing from God himself. Eli had lost his way. And so Eli's sons grew in their evil deeds, but Samuel grew, we read, in, state, in stature and in favor with God. And this is precisely because Samuel had God as his father. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, God gave the growth. <coughs> As we'll see in the next passage, in a couple of weeks, the last part of chapter 2, God is going to clean house. He's going to sweep Eli and his sons from their positions in the tabernacle. God is in the process now of raising up men to take their place. He is raising up prophets to prepare the way for the coming king. He's going to bring in a new priest to replace Eli and the sons. And Samuel is going to be instrumental in God's establishment of the monarchy in Israel. He will literally become the kingmaker. It was by his anointing that Saul and later David became king. And so despite similarities between Samuel's early life and that of Jesus, Samuel in many ways was a precursor to John the Baptist. Samuel prepared the way for King David. Saul was made king because the people thought they knew better than God. King David was the man after God's own heart. And Samuel prepared the way for him. John the Baptist prepared the way for King Jesus. But because Samuel prepared the way for the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, he indirectly prepared the way for King Jesus as well. 
without the monarchy, without King David and his descendants, God's people in the New Testament era and God's people today, we wouldn't properly understand Christ's role as the king of his people. And so Samuel was helping to lay that original foundation so that God's people over a millennium later would be able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, who would bring with him the kingdom of heaven. In both the Old Testament and in the New, the coming of the king meant growth in grace for some and judgment for others. Those who trust in the Lord will grow from grace unto grace, but those who refuse to trust in the Lord will have their hearts hardened. Those who trust in the Lord will be at peace with Him and will have everlasting life. But those who hate the Lord, who are sons of destruction, like the sons of Eli, they will themselves be destroyed. Dale Ralph Davis explains this helpfully as he's talking about verse 25 in our passage. This text, verse 25, it teaches that someone can remain so firm in his rebellion that God will confirm it in him. So much so that he will remain utterly deaf to and unmoved by any warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance. Hophni and Phinehas, they have been warned... However weakly it was, however feeble it was by Eli, they were warned. And they did not change. Their hearts were hardened. They were in rebellion against the Lord. They hated him. And it was because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The will of these men and the will of the Lord worked in perfect concert with one another. Unlike these two men. But like Abraham, Samuel had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. He trusted implicitly in the coming of the future high king of heaven to whom King David would point as a sign. If you refuse to trust in Christ, if you like Hophni and Phinehas, if you refuse to repent of your rebellion against the Lord, you will be judged. You'll be judged harshly. You will be considered to be a son or a daughter of destruction. But if you trust in Christ, God will cause you to grow in stature and in favor with Him. He who began a good work in you will see it unto completion. He will give to you the growth And that, brothers, is good news. That, sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that it is not how much we labor. It is not based upon our own toil. But it is based upon your grace that we have salvation. We confess to you that left unto ourselves, in and of ourselves, O Lord, we too would be worthless. We too would be children of destruction, sons and daughters of Belial. But we thank you, O Lord, that by giving us true and saving faith, you have caused us to be your sons and daughters. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to have gratitude-filled hearts 
We pray that you would fill us with thanksgiving for what you have done for us. And that out of that thanksgiving, out of that gratitude, we, O oh Lord, would desire to bring glory to your name by being obedient to your word. Help us to show our love for you by living according to your will. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the growth that you produce in the lives of your children. We pray that we would do that which we can do to promote that growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.